Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we count it such a privilege to come together as believers in you, to study your word. We ask that your spirit will join us today, fill our hearts, uh, open our minds to the truths everlasting, and may we come into a unity and fellowship of love as you've designed, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number two in the quarterly, Feed My Sheep, First and Second Peter, and the title this week is An Inheritance Incorruptible, and the memory text is from First Peter one twenty two, which reads, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Think about this. What does this mean? What does this mean? First, according to this text... What is the result of purification? If you read this text, purify yourself so that... What happens when we're pure? We love. We love. That's Notice, so what is purification then? Purification is purifying the heart, the soul, the inner person. Is purification in this context something legal or something literal happening within the person? What did the Jews in Christ's day think purification was? Eating the right foods and clean pots. Eating the right foods, cleaning. It was ritualistic. It was ceremonial. And remember, they go, why, why is it that your disciples don't wash their hands and our disciples do and, and all of this kind of stuff? How come they eat with pots that weren't washed the proper way? And so they thought purification was something you did ritualistically. Do Christians today ever struggle with the idea that spiritual purification is found in rituals or ceremonies. Do they ever struggle with that today? So what does it actually mean to be purified? Would it mean a pure heart and a right spirit that David prayed for? Mm-hmm. A change in the inner man to be like Christ? Well, consider this quote out of uh, Christian Leadership, page 8. Co-workers with Christ will manifest no harshness no self-sufficiency. These elements must be purified from the soul and the gentleness of Christ take possession. So we understand that being purified is an important part of salvation or necessary for salvation and that purification is a change in the heart from selfishness to love. But the question is, how are we purified? Peter says in the memory text, You have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Interesting. Purified yourselves by obeying the truth. What does this mean? Well, this is out of Evangelism, page 110. And consider this in connection. There's a vast amount of rubbish brought forward by professed believers in Christ which blocks up the way to the cross. Pause. I'm going to pause in the middle of the quote. Amen. What might this rubbish brought forth by believers in Christ that obstruct our way to the cross be? We don't need purification. We, uh, rubbish that we don't need purification? What kind of... How many Christians say, believers in Christ, do you hear preaching, we don't need purification from sin, it's okay to live sinfully? That's not what you mean. No, I've been saved. Ah, okay. So what he's saying is... We've been saved already. And so what? what is the root, though? There, you're just articulating the most common way this is said, but what root leads to that idea? It's an imposed concept 
the, the imposed law concept. The idea that sin is a legal problem, that Jesus took my place, paid the penalty, I accept it, now I'm declared righteous even though I'm not, I've, I've been legally purified, so therefore I'm saved. That's this idea. This, this obstructs the way to cross. So keep going with the, with the quote. Notwithstanding all this, there are some who are so deeply convicted that they will come through every discouragement and will surmount every obstacle in order to gain the truth. But had the believers in the truth pure, purified their minds by obeying it, had they felt the importance of knowledge and refinement of manners in Christ's work, where one soul had been saved, there might have been 20. What is that saying? First off, did you notice this quote agrees with Peter? Purified their minds by obeying it. Peter says, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. There's agreement with those two quotes. Is Peter saying, therefore, we are saved by our works? What law lens do you look through when you read quotes like this? If you believe God's law functions like human law, imposed rules that require imposed punishments, then serious false ideas emerge when you read Peter. Being purified under the false law view means something like this. Purified means being purified from the legal guilt, the condemnation that sin requires uh, because of the sins we've committed, and we're saved from the punishment of sin. Or... Under that false law of you, purification is when we trust in the blood payment of Jesus. We are declared to be pure or righteous, even though we're not. This is a penal substitution theology. Notice, we're not actually purified. We're just declared to be purified. Interesting. Very commonly taught. Or this one, another false one. Purification is purifying our heavenly records by purging our records from the recorded sins when we accept the legal payment of Jesus. It's not changing our hearts. It's just the records have no record of it, so the, the judicial magistrate in heaven can't punish us for them because they've been wiped out. Or ensure the... And, and in order to ensure the records remained purged of our bad deeds, we must obey all the rules. Because if we have some sin that we've committed that we haven't confessed, then all the others we've confessed go back on the books and we get punished for. Isn't this how it's often taught? However, if you return to the design law, God is creator and how he's built reality to run in all domains, then you realize that sin is being out of harmony with God and his designs for life, how he's constructed it. And this condition is a terminal condition. We are dead, terminal, dying in trespass and sin. And that only Christ could restore humankind back to God's design. Thus Jesus came to, one, reveal the truth about God, to win us to trust, expose Satan as a liar so we stop trusting his view of things, and to fix the damage that sin did to the species human and, per, and, and restore humanity back to its perfection. Thus, Jesus provides the truth, which establishes our faith or trust. And in faith and trust, we choose with our wills to not only trust him, I trust you, Lord, but we say, I choose to follow you. I choose to apply, to do what, what you've led me to understand is, is right, healthy, and true. And it's our choice to partake, to obey or not. And it's by the exercise of our wills in making the choice to trust and to obey or follow or apply that we retain our individuality while the Holy Spirit 
transforms the inner man. If we don't choose, then we obstruct the Holy Spirit because our individuality is, is, uh, would be erased if the Holy Spirit used power to change us without our willful participation. Yes? When you say return back to perfection, can you uh, illuminate a little bit more on that, that it's not the, the physical action of doing the list, but the relationship? Who did I say restored humanity back to perfection? He said, oh, Jesus Christ comes and restores. And Jesus Christ, in his humanity on earth, perfected humanity. Okay, so your question then in that light was? Is it the bridge then returning us back to that relationship with the Heavenly Father? Okay, so the truth that he revealed about himself, exposing Satan, wins us to trust, we open the heart, and then we're reconnected. But when we're reconnected, then what happens? Is that it? I, I trust you. Or is there then an indwelling presence that enlightens us to understand the difference between God's design? Here's how God constructed, say, relationships to work. God constructed relationships to work in a loving, other-centered trust and loyalty and fidelity in an intimate marriage relationship. This is God's design. And therefore, now that I see that, I'm going to, if I hadn't been in the same relationship before, I'm going to stop lying and cheating or beating or whatever I was doing in my relationship because I want to live in harmony with God's design. I'm going to stop manipulating, controlling, coercing. I want to live in a relationship in which freedom and love are applied. I'm going to choose to to treat my spouse as an equal rather than dominate and control. Why am I going to choose to do that? Because number one, I see that's how God's treated me. Number two, I realize I trust him. Number three, I understand that that's the only construct upon which life and health work. And I want to participate with that. And then when you choose to do that, you receive divine power to enable you to follow through with the choice. You see, many Christians, they're struggling with something in their life. And they pray for deliverance from that struggle. But here's how the power works. Many people want the power. Okay, The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And Jesus said the Spirit will convict us convict us of sin, but also convict us of duty and responsibility, which is different. We have those convictions. This is my responsibility. I've got to, this is mine to fulfill. Okay? And so Holy Spirit brings us truth in ways we can comprehend and then leaves us free to decide whether we will choose it or reject it. That's up to us. The Holy Spirit doesn't make that choice, does he? Once we choose it, then the Holy Spirit gives us divine power sufficient to fulfill whatever it is, whether it's overcoming a sin or whether it's fulfilling a duty, a task, a calling. Okay, But we don't get the power until we make the choice. And many Christians are waiting for the power before they make the choice. Does that help? Okay. Thus the remedy, the remedy to our condition which I like to really say is the perfected human character, the perfected human um, mind character that Jesus developed while he was here on earth as a human, was achieved singly and alone by Christ. None of our works add to what Christ achieved. None of it. However, we must choose to trust and partake of what he's achieved. Now, just like if you had a disease and there was a medicine, an antibiotic, say, to, to cure your disease... You didn't make it. You don't even understand how it works. You didn't produce it. It's offered to you for free. Do you still have to take it? You don't have to take it? No, you don't. And if you don't take it, then what happens? It doesn't work. Then you don't get well. You continue to die. So Christ perfected what's necessary for our salvation 
And everyone's free to take it or not. If you want to get well, though, do you have to take it? Yes, and that's your choice. Okay? So this idea of obedience, the Greek word for obedience is hypokoi, which is the first half hypo, like in hypoglycemic, hypotensive. It means low or under. And a QA from acoustical or acoustic means to hear. And so the Greek word obedience actually means a humble willingness to listen with a heart eager to understand and apply. Okay? There was actually in uh, the New Testament era a servant that worked on the master's estate whose job title was the hypokue. That was his job title. And what was his job? He sat at the gate of the estate and waited for the approach of the master and he hears the master's voice and when he hears the voice of the master, his job is to get up and open the gate. That's his job. Listening and obey. Now what happens if the, he's sitting there eagerly waiting, he, he's missed his master, he loves his master, he hears the voice of the master, he jumps up to open the gate, but it's maybe some wooden gates, it's a hot, humid day, the, 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 the hinges have rusted shut, the humidity has got them stuck, and with all his might he's pushing on the gate, but he can't get it open. And the master has to get off and use his energies and might as well to assist him in getting the gate open. Is he an obedient or disobedient servant? He's obedient, even though he didn't get it done. Okay, that's biblical obedience. Okay, we often, though, under the imposed law model, it's all about performance. So you didn't get the gate open. You're bad. You failed. It's all about performance. No, it's not about performance in the Bible. It's about hard attitude. That's That's the issue. So with this in mind, consider this quotation out of Faith I Live by, page 130. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that the truth is accepted in the heart and the human agent is purified and cleansed. What do you hear? Truth it is through faith that the truth is accepted in the heart and human. Truth wins to trust. And in trust, the truth moves. But once we come to trust, you see, there's truth understood that does not lead to trust. The devils believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You're the Son. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the, the Son of the Most High God. Have you come to, de, to, to destroy us? Okay. They believe He's the Son of the Most High God. Does it lead them to trust? No. There's truth understood, but unless it leads to trust or faith, then it's not transformational. Okay. So truth, once it leads us to trust, though, then it goes beyond comprehension. It goes into application. We love it. We want to be like it. We identify with it. It becomes as food. If you eat food, it is broken down into molecules. Those molecules get assimilated, and those various molecules get actually incorporated into the actual structure of cells in your body, building blocks of your body. Truths that you take into your heart and cherish become Concepts, ideas that become building blocks forming your framework for reality and ultimately affecting and transforming who you are. This is why Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's not talking cannibalism, the word was made flesh. Unless we internalize truth into our constructs, thinking and love it in our hearts, it has no transforming power on us. So this is a real transformational process as we internalize the truth into the heart. And we choose then to apply it to the best of our ability. Okay, continue on with the quote. He has an abiding principle. Notice, those who, um, through faith in Christ, accept the truth, 
The human age is purified and cleansed. He has an abiding principle in the soul that enables him to overcome temptation. Notice now when we entrust in faith, love the truth, and pull the truth into our heart, we don't have a concept. We have an abiding principle. Now, what's a principle? It's design law, guys. It's design law. How life is built to operate. Principles are design laws. And there's multiple design laws that will abide in us as we love and identify with them. Whoever abides in him sins not, 1 John 3, 6. God has power to keep the soul that is in Christ who is under temptation. A mere profession of godliness is worthless. It is he that abides in Christ that is a Christian. Unless the mind of God becomes the mind of men, every effort to purify himself will be useless. For it is impossible to elevate man except through penal, imposed law construct, except through accepting the legal payment of the blood of Jesus to your account in heaven. And then you're declared. No. Except through a knowledge of God. Except through a knowledge of God. What does it mean? First, uh, excuse me, John 17.3, this is life eternal, that they might know you. Now, does know mean know about? Can a person study their whole life about God, which in the Greek is theos, and thus if they study theos, they become a theologian, or they study theology. Can they study their whole life and still not know God? Could you, for instance, a simple example, are there, could you study, for instance, the, the life of Ronald Reagan or the life of Abraham Lincoln? Or the life of somebody still alive today, Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Could you study their lives? And could you be an expert on the facts and historical record of their life? Know what they were, when they were born, where they went to, who their first grade teacher was. Uh, uh, you got a quote that they said in second grade to somebody on the playground. And, and you know all these details about the, does that mean you know them? The rest is already good. Does that mean you know them? No. Many people study about God but never know him. The question you need to put to yourself is, am I a Christian? To be a Christian is far more than many understand. It means more than simply having your names upon the church records. It means to be joined to Christ. It means to have simple faith, unwavering reliance upon God. It means to have childlike confidence in your heavenly Father through the name and merit of his dear Son. Childlike confidence. You guys, many of you know that I have a couple of grandchildren two and four, and one of the things they love to do is they love to jump into my arms. Now, they also love for me to throw them in the air, but sometimes they'll get into this position where they'll run and they'll step on the arm and they'll run and they'll jump and they'll run and they'll jump and they'll run and they'll jump and I'll catch them. And they jump without even looking. They don't even look. They just jump. Why do they just jump? because they know I'm going to catch them. And I have to take real serious precautions like, okay, walk them out of the room so they'll stop the cycle. Okay? This is the faith of the child. And why do they know I'll catch them? Why do they know that? When a stranger's in the room, they don't run and jump at the stranger. They don't do that. Because they know you. That's right. They know me. They have experience with me. They've been caught by me. Have you been caught by the Lord? Do you love 
to keep the commandments of God because the commands of God are God's precepts, the transcript of his character, and can no more be altered than can the character of God. What do you hear? When you hear, as soon as the word commandments come up, do you immediately start thinking of all the do's and the don'ts you got to do? Okay, all the, that's that list. Okay, no, I want my checklist because I want to be an obedient servant and I want to, don't want to offend the master. I want to do the right things. And then you got to do this, got to do that, got to do this other thing. And I'm going to add 600 things to it because that, you know, that way I'll be really sure to be able And all of a sudden you're stressed and worried and you're anxious and you're fearful. Is that what you hear when you hear commandments? Rules, restrictions. Or did you notice they are God's precepts, the transcript of his character can no be altered than, than the character of God. What type of law is really being described here? This is design law. This is God's construction of reality. And it can no more be altered than his character. Jesus said, I've not come to change the law. Not one jot or tittle will be erased, uh, will be changed unless all is erased, basically. Why? Unless the heavens and earth cease? What would happen if they changed gravity by one iota in, with, a, with a zero of 60 zeros behind it? By that much. If they changed gravity by that much, the universe wouldn't exist as we know it. God's laws are the laws upon which everything's built. You can't change them and have the universe as we know it still exist. Yes. How about the command of Jesus to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself? Then it... Yes. The list. And what kind of law is that? Exactly. This is design law. Yes, exactly right. He's trying to elevate their thinking. Okay, and then out of um, Faith I Live by 135, five pages later, it says, every individual by his own act, by his own act, and that's her too, ladies, his or her own act, either puts Christ from him by refusing to cherish his spirit and follow his example, or he enters into a personal union with Christ by self-renunciation, faith, and obedience. What does this mean to you? This, wait a second, this, you're making this hard. And before, when I, when I used to go to the Bible school, and, and I went to my Sunday or Sabbath school class, they told me that my responsibility is to say this in prayer, accept the legal payment of Jesus, and went to my account, and, and I just had to accept it, and that it was it, and I'm saved. You're making this hard. <laughs> Why is it easier? Why is this easier? Because the basis of his every choice that you make is either from a selfish, self-preserving position or that reflecting God's heart of the unselfish love that he pours out. Do, do our choices make a difference in our eternal destiny? Absolutely. Yes. Why? It changes our heart. So every choice that we make changes only our hearts. What do you mean by that? Our, our individuality, our character. The core sense of who we are. We are changed by our choices. Is that all that gets changed? If you choose to start smoking cigarettes, will you be changed by that? Yes, you will. Are there con- now, if, if you're a smoker and you pray for forgiveness for God for, for smoking, will you forgive me for abusing the spirit temple? What, what, what will God's response be? Yes. Of course I will. I, I'm not mad at you. I love you. I want to. I want to save you for all eternity. I have a plan that if you'll let me work with me, you'll get a you'll get a brand new body one day. This corruption will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. But does God's forgiveness stop all the damage that's happening while they're smoking? No. 
And why is that damage happening? Is God sending an angel from heaven to ruin their lungs? They are deviating from design law, laws of health, and there are consequences to that. That's exactly right. And when we, when we choose to apply God's designs to our life, so a smoker decides to stop smoking, you know, and they start doing healthy things, their lungs will begin to heal and repair. Maybe they start exercising. They'll be able to climb stairs without getting short in breath if they haven't damaged themselves too far. We must each for himself choose Christ because he has first chosen us. Why? Because he has first chosen. Nobody chooses Christ before Christ chose you. This union with Christ is to be formed by those who are naturally at enmity with him. It is a relation of utter dependence to be entered into by a proud heart. This is close work, meaning very intimate, very personal, very private. And many who profess to be followers of Christ know nothing of it. They nominally accept the Savior, but not as the sole rulers of their heart. The evil tendencies of mankind are hard to overcome. The battles are tedious. Have you ever experienced that reality, the tedious battles? Every soul in the strife, The strife knows how severe, how bitter are these contests. Everything about growth in grace is difficult because the standard and maxims of the world are... Why why is it difficult? Here's why this growth in grace, this transforming experience, this maturing is difficult because the maxims and standards of the world are constantly interposed or get in between the soul and God's holy standard. So the question is, what are the standards and maxims of the world? Okay, number one... I've got to watch out for myself. Kill or be killed. Survival of the fittest. This is the right way to do things. Two, if it feels good, do it. That's a maxim of the world, isn't it? It's strong. Uh, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. Yeah. It isn't wrong if you don't get punished. You can do anything as long as you don't get punished. If you don't get punished, it's not wrong to do it. It's only wrong if you get punished. Justice requires the infliction of punishment. This is the maximum of the world. You'll see this all over the news, all over the TV programming. It is so deeply embedded, and through much of Christianity, the idea that we have a righteous judge who one day, will he's keeping a record, and he's keeping an account, and the nations and the people who haven't had the blood payment of Jesus, one day he's going to have a tribunal. He's going to have a judge, and he is going to inflict proper punishment because sin must be punished. And you you don't have to take punishment because God will make them suffer worse than you ever can. Oh, doesn't that bring you peace? The Lord would have us elevated, ennobled, purified by carrying out the principles underlying his great moral standard, which will test every character in the great day of final reckoning. Oh, whoa, did you hear this, guys? This is profound. What is the test on the great day of final reckoning? Is it a test of our records, a, bi- a chart biopsy, a biopsy of your, of your heavenly record to see if every sin has been erased and the blood has been applied and forgiveness has been stamped? Is this the test? No, it is not. It is a test of character. And what would that look like? Revelation 12.11. I'll quote Revelation 12.11. Revelation is a, 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 about the end time events and, and, and preparing to meet Christ. And Revelation 12.11 says this about those who are ready for translation. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. What is being described about these people? 
unselfishness. In other words, what's the natural human drive, the drive of the principles of the world that obstruct us to the cross? The natural drive is survival of the fittest, kill or be killed. Here, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. A new motive has come in. They're not willing to hurt, exploit, take advantage. They're not going to lie. They're not going to cheat. They're not going to misrepresent. They're not going to gossip. They're not going to manipulate. They're not going to put on fake news in order to get their way. They're not going to do it. They're going to love others more than self. And this is the test. A test of character. Have we grown and matured? So, so, so what is salvation? It is purification, healing, transforming the inner person, which requires an active, engaged experience with Jesus Christ. Christ gave his life. This is out of uh, Amazing Grace, page 103. Christ gave his life to make it possible for man to be restored to the image of God. What did Christ give his life for? What's, what's, according to this quote, what's, what's the purpose of Christ's sacrifice? to make it possible for human beings to be restored to the image of Christ, to heal, to regenerate. Okay, It is the power of his grace that draws men together in obedience to the truth. Can one be purified, healed, restored, transformed in violation of God's laws? See, can a person, can a doctor get a person well in violations of the laws of health? You can't. It's not possible. Doctors, whatever they're doing, they're working to put the person back in harmony with the laws of health. Okay. Likewise, God cannot heal souls who persistently choose to deviate from his designs for how he constructed life to, to, to work. It's not that he wouldn't like to save them. It's not possible in his universe for it to work that way. God desires us to reach the standard of perfection made possible for us by the gift of Christ. Does that word perfection frighten you, make you uncomfortable? Makes you very stressed. Perfection, that's so, that's so, I've got to be perfect. Oh, big pressure, big pressure. Okay, so when you're sick, you go to the doctor, got pneumonia, got, got leukemia, got cancer, whatever, and you go to the doctor and you say, Doc, whatever you do to me, don't tell me you're going to perfectly heal me. Perfection scares me. I only want to be 80% well. Or do you want perfect healing? Remember, the pressure here is on God. Our responsibility is to participate. God does the healing. We do the participation. Desires to reach the standard of perfection. He calls upon us to make our choice. That's ours. We have to choose. On the right side, to connect with heavenly agencies, to adopt principles, not rules. Not rules. Principles. See, here's a principle you can be dogmatic on. The principle of freedom. We present the truth in love, we leave people free. This is a biblical principle. You can be dogmatic. And if people are dogmatic on the principle of freedom, do we ever abuse people who disagree with us? Do we ever threaten people who disagree with us? Do we ever tell people, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to kill you? No. So you can be dogmatic on that principle. That's a principle. I love you, I'll present the truth in love, I'll leave you free, Romans 14, 5. to adopt principles that will, that will restore us to the divine image. Principles will restore us to the divine image. Why? Because another word for principles is God's law. And what is the new, new covenant experience? I will write my law in your heart and mind. It's the principles of operation become godly when the spirit dwells within. In his written word and in the great book of nature, 
I love that. He has revealed the principles of life. These types of quotes destroy the penal substitution model. Because in that model, there is no design protocol. In nature, you do not see penal substitution. You don't see it. It doesn't work. It is our work to obtain a knowledge of these principles. So is it true that we have a work to do in thinking, in reasoning, in studying, in conversing with God, in researching his word, in processing, in choosing what makes more sense and what doesn't, what works and doesn't? Do we have a work there to do? It is our work to obtain a knowledge of these principles and by obedience to cooperate with him in restoring health to the body as well to the soul. Man needs to learn the blessings of obedience in their fullness can be theirs only as they receive the grace of Christ. In his grace, it is his grace that gives men power to obey the laws of God. And uh, the spirit of God produces a new life in the soul, bringing the thoughts and desires into obedience to the will of God, and the inward man is renewed in the image of God. And who's doing that? The Spirit is doing it as we choose to think, comprehend. Oh, I love the principle of freedom. I love the principle of beneficence. I want to be like that, Lord. Pour your Spirit into my heart. Enable me. And we identify with and long to be like, and then there's a power that transforms us. We can't make ourselves this way, but we can, we can see it. We can value it. We can want it. We can choose it. But the Holy Spirit changes us. Sunday's lesson. We're just getting to Sunday. Peter was an apostle, which the lesson tells us means one cent. What do you understand that an apostle is? In other words, do you think a synonym for apostle would be ambassador? A, a reasonable synonym. A person sent to represent and fulfill the plans, aspirations, missions, directives, and goals of the one who sent them. Does a person have to have spent three and a half years physically in Jesus' presence on earth in order to have been an apostle? No. No, remember when, when remember in Acts chapter 1 they replaced one of the apostles, the Judas, okay? And then Paul became an apostle. Now, he spent three and a half years in the desert, but I don't think Jesus was physically present with him for three and a half years. I think it was much more like we would spend time in conversation with God. But what are the what are the differences and similarities? Similarities and differences between apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. Similarities? Both are inspired by the same spirit, represent the same God, operate on the same methods, teach the same eternal truths, work the same eternal agenda, work for the same eternal agenda, teach the same principles of God's kingdom, of love. And both can experience various gifts of the spirit as the spirit determines they need for their particular mission. Notice how I said that, as the spirit determines they need for their particular mission. Differences. The biggest difference, I think, is one of focus. Apostles, if you look are really like ambassadors, primarily sent out from an organization to represent the organization to those who are not part of the organization. These are apostles. And to bring them a knowledge of the organization. Whereas the message, and the message of the apostles, that's, that's how it often went to those who not yet had identified themselves as Christians, reaching out to bring them a knowledge of Christ. Whereas prophets are typically brought up within the organization to help the organization deal with problems within the organization, to correct, reprove, um, bring special messages, to refine and purify the organization. There's overlap because of, of the message. As I said, what they're doing is the same. It's just a little bit, I think, subtle difference in maybe the focus of where they're doing it. The lesson points out that there was debate over whether 
the epistle of Peter was written primarily for Jewish or Gentile believers. And then they um, will read the last paragraph with this in mind. It says, some, some commentators argue in response that what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18 and 4.3 would be more appropriately said to Gentiles, converts, to Christianity than to Jewish ones. After all, would Peter really have written to the Jews about the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors? Or would he have said to the Jewish reader, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles uh, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And I thought about this. And I thought, well, maybe the words of Jesus might impact us. Let's look at the first one they question. Feudal ways inherited from your ancestors. Would he say this to the Jews? Well, this is Matthew 23, 29 through 36. And this is what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the, fill up then the measure of sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them will kill and some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the right, blood of righteous Abel down to Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. So might he been writing feudal ways inherited from your ancestors? I think so. I think there's a lot of futility in the ancestry of the Jewish nation. I think that could have been very much written to them. What about the one about, um, for we have spent long enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles and all the hedonism. Did the Jewish nation have a long history of repeated pagan fertility cult worship going into after the ways of the Gentiles over and over again and all this lewdness? Yes. I, I, don't, I don't even... I just was like, what? Of course this could be written to the Jews. Of course it could. So I think my personal opinion is it's very reasonable that Peter was writing both to Jews and Gentiles. It's not either or. He's writing to both. Monday's lesson. What does it mean to be elected to salvation or to be elected... Uh, of God, or the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. First Peter 1, 2, being elect according to the foreknowledge of God. You notice what I did in the last, I read some quotes, and then I broke down what those quotes mean? So, one of the things I'm learning is that, um, you know, it's important for people to practice doing this kind of thing for themselves, so they can kind of master that skill. So I'm going to read you a quote, and then you're going to break it down for me. Okay, this is out of um, Christian Education, page 118. I'm going to read one paragraph, and then you're going to break down the meaning for me. Here are the conditions upon which every soul will be elected to eternal life. Your obedience to God's commandments will prove your right to an inheritance with the saints in light. God has elected a certain excellence of character in everyone who, through the grace of Christ, shall reach the standard of his requirement will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of glory. All who would reach this standard of character will have to employ the means that God has provided to this end. 
If you would inherit the rest that remains for the children of God, you must become co-laborers with God. You are elected to wear the yoke of Christ, to bear his burden, to lift his cross. You are to be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Search the scriptures and you will see that not a son or daughter of Adam is elected to be saved in disobedience to God's law. The world makes void the law of God, but Christians are chosen to to sanctification through obedience to the truth. They are elected to bear the cross if you would wear the crown. Does Does that warm you or does that like... I'll burden you and frighten you. Do you feel comfort from that or do you feel stress from that? How do you process it? What law lens? So you guys, we'll, we'll take it one, one phrase. Here are the conditions upon which every soul will be elected to eternal life. What do you understand that means? Certain things we have to do in order to be saved. One thing is accept. Certain things we have to do. One thing to be accept to believe. Yes? Choice. Our choice. Mm-hmm. We've got these, I like choice. So, so first question: What does the word condition connote? What What's the meaning here? Because you have a choice. That you have a choice. Conditions. What are the conditions? What law lens do you listen through? What law lens? If you go through the human law lens, what are the conditions? There are conditions yes. for salvation under the legal lens. What are the, What are those conditions? The legal conditions are the payment that was made by the sinless Son of God who met the requirements of the law in your behalf because you couldn't meet them and you must accept the payment and you must be baptized in the proper way in order for you to be able to partake of the conditions that God has made in the legal justice system of heaven. These are the conditions in the legal view. Yeah? How about under the design law, what are the conditions? What does it mean? If you understand design law, the conditions simply mean those are the aspects of reality upon which God constructed life to work, which we must must be restored to. Those are the conditions. So a person who is trans... Remember, I've used this example before, but a person who's transgressing the law of respiration because they've tied a rope around their neck and they're hanging from the ceiling as you walk in, they kick the chair out from under them, they are now transgressing the law, breaking the law of respiration, they're a lawbreaker. What are the conditions upon which they can be saved? A legal pardon? Well, I'm going I'm to write the governor and get a pardon. Restoration. I'm going to get a substitute. I'm going to have somebody come and be hung in their place. Cut the rope and let him down. Ah, restore them to harmony with the law. Take the rope off their neck. Okay? This is the, one of the conditions. The condition is restoration to righteousness. That's the condition. I'll write my law on your heart and mind. I'll take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. I'll circumcise the heart by the Spirit. We'll get the mind of Christ. We'll, have the, we'll be recreated in the inner, inner man. The old is gone. The new has come. The metaphors of Scripture are bringing us to restoration theology. Not penal substitution. That's one of those barriers we, that was mentioned earlier. Okay, next, next sentence. Your obedience to God's commandments will prove your right to an inheritance with the saints in light. What does this mean? What, again, what law lens am I looking through? Ask that question. It'll help clarify for you. But we are so conditioned when we hear that obedience to the command. And if you're Seventh-day Adventist, you have a whole different set of constructs of what this means. Your obedience to God's commands will prove you're right. And that Seventh-day Adventist church knows and is taught and is sermonized repeatedly what that means. 
The testimony of Jesus, these are the remnant who hold to the testimony of Jesus and obey the commands of God, which means Fourth is the most important. we observe Sabbath, on the, we, we, we worship on the right day. That's the thing. That's the test. And if you don't do that, say then, then by, by your obedience to Sabbath hold, uh, keeping, that's going to that's gonna prove it to you. That's your right. That's your ticket. Is that what this is saying? But when we hear the word, you're given the right, um, we are so conditioned to think that we forget that rights are granted by uh, the, whatever government is in, in power at the time. And heavenly government grants, I think privilege is a better word. So if we think about obedience here in the New Testament Greek construct, remember the New Testament word for obedience is? Hypoqa, a humble willingness to listen, and then do. So obedience to the commandments means we have a heart that loves God as we've seen him revealed in Jesus. He's beautiful. His methods are awesome. We love that. We want a universe like that. We want to be like that. We want to participate. We long to go that direction. We have a humble willingness to follow him that direction. We're obedient to his commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. His protocols. This is, this is what we're being transformed to. This is biblical obedience. And we follow it and choose. Not necessarily best performance. Remember the example of the person at the gate. But we do the best we can, and Christ comes in and enables us to do better with each time. We're transformed. By beholding, the Bible says we are, what kind of law is that? That's, we call that in psychiatry, modeling. In the Bible, it's called the law of worship. It's actually, we are neurobiologically and characterologically changed by esteeming and valuing and worshiping and adoring. We are actually, we are physiologically and psychologically and spiritually changed by that. Also, when we spend time meditating, thinking, uh, studying, choosing, this is the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. If you don't exercise it, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so as you participate in God's principles and choose his methods, you are cooperating with his design law to strengthen his methods in your heart and character. And then there's a law of sowing and reaping. The Bible in Galatians talks about that. God will not be mocked. Uh, uh, A man will reap what he sows. This is design law. This is reality. Okay, next sentence. All who would reach the standard of character will have to employ the means that God has provided to this end. The means. So, what means has God provided? Do you have a comment? With John 3.16 and 17, Christ came, and so with that 17, though, often gets left off. That's right. He did. Well, he did not come to condemn, but to save through him. That's 17. That's right. Condemnation is not coming from God, but salvation, healing, restoration. Yeah. So what, what is the means? Seriously, can you name the specific means that actually resolve the sin problem for us? Obviously, Jesus Christ, yes, of course. But what means does he use? Truth destroys and love transforms from fear and selfishness. Truth and love in an atmosphere of freedom. These are his means. Perfectly lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. And then when we appreciate the truth, we open the heart and trust. And he, Romans 5.5, 5, pours his love into our hearts. That love does not come from us. 
It is an abiding experience coming from God, but then we participate. I love that, and I want to choose. And you begin choosing the, those methods in your life, which enables and, and transforms and opens the floodgates of your heart so you can do more love and more and share more truth because you're changed by the process. This is his means. If you would inherit the rest that remains for the children of God, you must become a co-laborer with God. Wait a minute. If I want to rest, I've got to work? Co-laborer? If I want to rest, I've got to work? Cheers. That, that sounds counterintuitive. Usually when I'm resting, I'm not working. How am I supposed to end the rest by being a laborer? It's more like it's peace. You know, it's peace. Next verse. You are elected to wear the yoke of Christ. Co-laborer. And right with the laborer, you're elected to wear the yoke of Christ to bear his burden to lift his cross. What does a yoke do? A yoke is not a bridle. It's not a bit in the mouth. A yoke is an instrument that goes between two animals and they share the load. Okay, we wear the yoke of Christ, which links us up with him, so we do not pull the burden or do the work on our own. It is a cooperative effort. We're choosing. He's empowering and he's leading and he's sharing. Okay, and the yoke, anybody know what the yoke is explicitly? What, what is the yoke that binds us to Christ? It's the yoke of love. It's the yoke of love. That is the yoke. Yes, take my yoke upon you. The yoke of love. And it, yes, this is it. Isn't there some science that supports that? Two animals working in concert and a yoke get more work done than the sum of the... Yeah, uh, I've never seen that science, but it wouldn't surprise me. All right, I'm going to skip the rest of this and move on because there's some other interesting things in the lesson. Last paragraph, it says, God's foreknowledge of the elect is simply his knowing beforehand what their free choice would be in regard to salvation. This foreknowledge in no way forced their choice any more than a mother knowing beforehand that her child will choose chocolate cake instead of green beans meant that her foreknowledge of the choice forced the child to make it. Hope you guys are thinking because this is a terrible illustration. It is absolutely horrible. And can anybody tell me why the illustration here is a horrible illustration of foreknowledge? Is the mother's knowledge of what the child will do based on foreknowledge? No. It is not based on foreknowledge. What's it based on? A knowledge of the character of the child, the preferences of the child. It's based on the history and the patterns of behavior from the child. This is not an example of foreknowledge. And this is exactly the example that those who deny the foreknowledge of Christ will use. Or the foreknowledge of God. There is the, the open theism group that don't believe God knows our choices before we make them, and they believe, though, that God can predict our choices based on his infinite knowledge of all the universal possibilities, and he can calculate with the greatest odds likelihood of what we're going to do so he can predict what we'll do before we do it, just like this mother can predict based on knowing our genetics and our neurobiology and our personalities and our characters and all the infinite other things happening in the universe and the humidity that day and and uh, whether we had pampers or cloth diapers as a baby and uh, I mean all the variables he he puts in and they're able to calculate what you're going to do this is not foreknowledge that's not foreknowledge foreknowledge is actually knowing the future before it happens now is there any evidence from scripture that God actually knows human choices before the human being makes the choice Cyrus. Okay, here's one. And it, it's in my list. Cyrus was called by name in 150 years before Cyrus was born as the king that would let Israel go and return them after the 70 years captivity. How about the 70 years captivity? 
How about the fact Israel was going to go into apostasy and ultimately end up in captivity for 70 years? That was a result of multiple millions of human choices over time apostatizing and resulted in it. How about the ark, Noah's ark? Did Noah preach for 120 years the flood is coming? Did Noah offer invitation for anybody who wants to get on the ark and be saved? How come they only built one ark? Think that through. Why was there only one ark? Why wasn't there a fleet? Because God knew. Ah, did he actually know beforehand or was it all a fraud? He never intended that the eight, he just, he just did that for appearance's sake. It was good politics, good publicity. We'll make an offer, but we're not going to let them on even if they wanted to. No, he knew. He knew. Other examples. How about the soldiers rolling dice for Jesus' clothes? Was that prophesied? Is that a specific choice of specific humans at a point in time of what they would actually behaviorally do? And did they have to make the choice to not cut it in half and give each person a piece or to roll the dice instead? They had to. That was their choice. Okay? God knew. He didn't make them do it. How about the prophecies in Daniel about what nations would rise up and what nations would fall? Scrolls of Revelation. Children of Israel going to Egypt or captivity and then returning How about Judas betraying Jesus? How about Peter denying Jesus? Three times. Rahab. Well, she was with the saved. He knew that. Even though she lied. Yeah, but was that an example of foreknowledge? Was there anything that predicted what she was going to do beforehand? I'm not familiar with that one. So, but these examples we're giving are the evidence that God knew what people would do before they did it. Does it make you uncomfortable? Is anyone uncomfortable that God knows what you're going to do before you do it? Are you uncomfortable? Some people are very uncomfortable with that. Because in their mind, if God knows what I'm going to do before I do it, He knows whether I'm going to do something tomorrow or not, then I'm not free to do it. That's, that's how they view. Because they confuse foreknowledge with causality. With predestination. With predetermination or predestination. See, that's what they do. They can, it, because God knows something is not the same as God causing it to be that way. And in fact, this is the way I like to put it. Let's see if this helps. How is it that God knows what we'll do in the future? Or what is it that enables God? What is it that enables God to know what we will do? That informs God of what we will do in the future? What is it that that, that gives him the information? Our choice in the future. (laughs) It's He doesn't know what we'll do in the future until we do it in the future. But he lives outside time. Get your mind up. He lives outside time. He's not in a linear existence like we are. So he's above time and he can look down at time and he can look into the future next year and he can see exactly what you're going to choose to do next year. But it's you choosing it in your linear existence when next year comes and that day happens and you make that choice. That choice you make on that day is what he sees you doing and informs him and he knows what you're going to do. But if you don't choose that, then he won't know it because you didn't choose it. He only knows what you choose. Does that confuse you or help you? Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. <laughs> Tuesday's lesson. One of the key themes in the resurrection of Je- is the resurrection of Jesus. Why did Jesus predict so confidently that he would rise from the dead? I really want to talk about this too. Was Jesus' prediction of resurrection of the dead based on foreknowledge? Ah, uh, yeah, so you guys are smart not to answer that, aren't you? <laughs> Was it based on foreknowledge? He studied the prophecies, so you're saying it wasn't based on foreknowledge, it was based on a study of the prophecies. Partially, I think it was based on a study of the prophecies, partially. Based on understanding of the design law, the 
that he designed, and he knew that he would restore life back into harmony with that design, and life would be the only result. So, Desire of Ages, Ellen White says, and I, I love where Russell's going with this, and that's exactly where we're going to go. Desire of Ages, Ellen White says that, that uh, Jesus cannot see through the portals of the tomb. What does that mean? He couldn't see the. It means he didn't have foreknowledge. He didn't see the future. Yes. So he had power to lay his life down and power to take it up again. Yes, he did say that. Is that a foreknowledge or is that a statement of fact? Was he telling, was he predicting or was he simply saying, this is the truth. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. That's a statement of fact, isn't it? He did predict he would die and you read in other places he predicts he will die and rise again on the third day. He says that in several places to his disciples. Was that statement a expression of foreknowledge he looked through time saw the future and told them the future or he predicted that based on partially knowing the bible prophecies that said this would happen but what russell's saying this wasn't my view what christ said was not based on foreknowledge it was based on real knowledge what's the difference between real knowledge and foreknowledge okay the knowledge he had the real knowledge of god's character the real nature and understood the real nature of sin he understood the reality of why sin causes death, what, what sin results in and why it results in death. He understood the real solution for the sin problem, what was needed to fix it. And he understood that he would, by his death, destroy death and bring life and immortality to light, according to Second uh, Timothy 1.10. He was going to destroy the cause of death in his action and bring life to light. Thus he could predict the outcome accurately that he would die, but knowing in so doing he's destroying the cause of death, the infection of selfishness that causes death, and restore the law of life, God's design law of love, back into the humanity that he assumed that he would rise in a perfected and immortal humanity. So can anyone tell me what will happen if I let go of this? I'm going to say, how many feel confident you can predict what will happen if I let go of this? Yes. I'm going to see some hands. How many predict that? Yes. Okay. How many of you have the gift of prophecy? <laughs> this is a future event. If I let go, it's an event that hasn't yet happened. It's in the future. But you feel great confidence in predicting it. Why? Because you know the law. And you know what happens with the law. Jesus knew the law. The law of life, we read those quotes last week, if you were here last week, that God's law are the law upon which life is built. And he would perfectly live that law out and destroy the law of sin and death that Paul talks about. And thus he rises again on the third day. This is what Russell was saying. Well, we don't have time to get into Wednesday's lesson and the three points that they, they made. It was very interesting ones. We got, we got through about half the lesson this week. So, Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are God of love, the, the creator, the designer, the builder of all reality, and that your, your laws are the protocols that, that life is constructed upon and an expression of your character of love, and that when humankind deviated from your design and fell into the terminal condition of sin, dead in trespass and sin, you did not abandon us, but you sent Jesus to do that which we could never do, to overcome and to restore this humanity back into perfection as you designed it. We pray now that your spirit will enlighten our minds, free us from the distortions that have obstructed your plan, and let us partake and experience the true revitalization and recreation to righteousness that you have for us, we pray in your holy name. Amen.